0: So, uh, good evening, it's Friday night at Spirit Rock. (laughs) This isn't the Friday night entertainment, it's the Friday night Dhamma. But um, I was just making my way up the hill a little before the talk and I, I didn't see a single person coming up, which is pretty unusual. And it felt so quiet, you know, quiet like the night, as I was coming up the hill, and I was just appreciating the, you know, the settling that's happening. And I, f- I feel kind of us, the, yeah, the stream of the one-month and two-month folks coming together. So I'm, uh, happy to be here with you. You know, when you consider what brings you to spend your time in this way, what brings you to the path of awakening to the Dhamma. On some level, there's often a just a feeling for a longing, a, a longing to have some home in this life, to have some place to rest, to feel like where you can uh, be okay and be who you are a place that is um more trustworthy than you know being sure that breakfast is what you like or that you have a good sitting or that um that depends on the ups and downs of a relationship or what's happening in the political landscape just some place of peace and home to come back to Maya Angelou said, the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. And uh, one way to cultivate this, this kind of refuge, this place to return to is through the brahma practices. Brahma meaning divine and Vihara meaning home divine abode, divine home, happy home. And um, you know, the Brahma Viharas are these attitudes, sublime attitudes, that can be cultivated, that allows, um, allows you to relate in a way that's lined up with your practice and lined up ultimately with happiness. happiness um, internally and and externally. And I appreciate uh, I appreciate the Brahma-Viharas, and tonight I'm going to speak about metta, metta-Brahma-Vihara as, as planting seeds of intention, planting seeds of intention, cultivating the wholeness. And um, it's quite powerful because... Um, You know, Brahma-vihara practice, this intention-setting practice, means you're planting seeds that carry karmic potential that will make a difference in the unfolding of how you're meeting the conditions of your life. And as we incline the citta in this direction, um, it shapes us. It shapes our hearts. It shapes who you are. And every moment of awareness is endowed with a particular quality of volition, a particular quality of intention. And so as we cultivate loving-kindness, we're cultivating an awareness that's not encumbered by the weight of greed, by the weight of aversion, by the weight of confusion. We're cultivating an awareness that is um, pervaded, suffused, with loving-kindness. I like the words that the Buddha used to describe the practice of of the Brahmaviharas and metta, suffusing, pervading, it feels a little like that. So tonight, um, the, the last talks that have been given have offered you just a whole bunch of awesome, skillful means to work with what's happening in your practice here. And tonight I'll offer some skillful means, but I'm also going to just share some stories and I invite you as I'm speaking to be kind of listening in your heart and in your belly and um, yeah, listening listening from your heart in the spirit of, of the topic tonight. And I wanted to not just say the same old meta things over and over and over because you've all heard meta talks and you've been in the hall for many of the afternoon sittings. So I'm just uh, sharing some of what comes to comes up for me as I reflect on meta this week, rather than going through what you might have already heard so many times. But it's always good to hear things over and over again, isn't it? Because we hear it from a different place. It's never it's never the same. So the word metta um, comes from you know, two parts. Mid, which uh, means to soften, or to love, or to be fat. And that's my favorite, <laughs> like a midsection, to be fat. And uh, the um mita, which is in the kind of the spirit of Kalyanamita, is is a, is a true friend, um, and the word the word um, Metta is translated as, and you know, we we say loving kindness. That's one translation. You could also consider Metta a practice of goodwill, of benevolence, of friendliness, um, of sympathy. To me, empathy carries an aspect of Metta to it. So my favorite translation of metta is to grow fat with kindness. <laughs> so let's grow fat with kindness together. Let's keep growing bigger and bigger with kindness over our days together. And it's good to have a felt sense of how how you experience a kind heart. How you experience an open heart because it feels so good when conditions are such that our hearts feel connected and open. I know for me, there's a a feeling of um, warmth and flow, connection to life, quality of being nourished when metta is present. And when metta is not so present and the heart is more closed, there's a sense of Tightening or a contraction, a, a stepping away from a kind of separation that can feel at times protective, or even a little bit powerful. You know how that can start to feel a little bit powerful when we hold ourselves separate. And um, but it really, it really leaves us unfulfilled. It leaves the heart wanting more intimacy, whether that's conscious or not. And. I was really happy to be asked to speak on this particular topic because meta has been such a key component, a critical component in my own practice over the last 20 years. And um, there were many times when Meta felt, felt like a, a healing balm to me when what I needed in my practice wasn't to do straight vipassana, wasn't to be with the breathing. I needed to... Um, Tenderize on the inside enough in a way that would actually allow the mindfulness to do its work. It's difficult to investigate what's happening when we're armoring against experience in our bodies or our hearts. Do you know what I mean? Um, so there were ways for me that the metta practice was necessary, especially early in my practice, for me to really do the mindfulness. And as my practice... Um, grew and stabilized, Meta became a um, valuable gateway to support uh, the collectedness of mind over time. And so for me, there's a way we can kind of, you know how we can kind of hold sitting meditation above walking meditation, but it's not actually that way? We can kind of hold the Brahma-vihara as secondary to the Vipassana. And for me, it's really not that way. <laughs> you know, this path is spoken about as being like a, like a bird with two wings. One wing being the wing of wisdom cultivated mm-hmm. through Vipassana. And one wing being the wing of love, which we cultivate through the heart practices. And, and um, you know, both wings need to be developed in equal measure, for that bird to take flight. And that bird, of course, is a symbol of our own um, awakening. And the Buddha taught people differently. He was so psychic. And, um, you know, I'm not psychic like the Buddha was, so I sit up here and offer the best I can to all of you. There's so many different flavors of hearts and minds sitting in this room. And uh, the Buddha recognized that people resonate with teachings presented in different ways. And he, res- he recognized that there are wisdom followers and there are faith followers and that it lands a little differently for each of us. Some people have a naturally kind of emotional nature. And so they'll, they'll do the Vipassana practice and there's the, these relational qualities and the heart qualities adjust unfold and are quite alive on their own. Other people will have a lot of um, clarity and articulation of the insight but it might feel a little dry. And in that case it's especially important to bring forth the, um, the metta practice. And And some people, um, and this was true for myself in diff- at different times, where it was really that the metta practice was the, was the doorway in. The doorway in. And in my own practice, um, metta has been um, a practice that's call, that's that's continues to develop a lot of insight, really. So I don't I don't hold them as separate. I I personally do hold metta as an aspect of uh, of our, of liberation. So I was thinking about this talk, and I I think about death. I re- I do the death recollection often, the five recollections. But I I um, reflect upon upon dying and death daily, and and you know, I was just reflecting how much it seems like the measure of a of a life well lived has a lot to do with love. Has a lot to do with I think some of what allows a person to die in peace is knowing that that you loved well. And I remember when when I was with my mother in her her final weeks and, and days and months, and the last thing she said to me after a very difficult uh, journey with terminal cancer she she, and she was so, so internal at that point. But the last thing she said to me, five times. She said, Aaron, I love you. She said it five times. And it, it really struck me that at the end of her life, like, that's what she wanted me to know. That was, that was what was most important to her. It doesn't always go this way. I was very fortunate that those were the last words. My mother happened to speak to me. But it was really this teach, teaching for me around, wow, if we know that, that death is... Certain, but the timing is uncertain. What makes sense in the meantime? From the Dhammapada In this world, hate never dispels hate Only love dispels hate This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible You too shall pass away Knowing this, how can you quarrel? It just gives perspective, and we can live—we can live this cultivation now. So. Uh, you need you need metta to do metta practice. You need metta to do mindfulness practice. But you need metta to do metta practice too because don't we all know how it is to be sitting on the cushion like, may I be happy? <laughs> or may I try to send metta toward this really, really difficult person wanting to feel it, but everything inside, having, having something else be going on. Such a purifying practice. And... Um, and there's a way in the, in the practice that our reactivity can be so alluring, can be so um, addictive almost, going back to those stories, going back to the reactivity. And um, it really does take an environment, an internal, and hopefully external, but especially an internal environment of kindness to open to our deeper conditioning, to open to the places of of pain. And in our culture, in the dominant culture in in this country, you know, for myself personally, I feel like I've got a lot of training in being nice, you know, agreeable and nice. But training in being kind is much deeper. They're not the same thing, being nice and being kind. Um... I looked up the words this afternoon, nice is pleasant, agreeable, and satisfactory. <laughs> and kind as uh, benevolent, helpful, and loving. So there's a way that kind relates to action. Um, the, the Persian, the Iranian poet, what's now Iran, Hafiz, says, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to the world all its beauty. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise we all remain too frightened. I think it's so beautiful. It's a little like that. We're we're a little like that bud, (laughs) feeling the encouragement of light just... Opening, because the waking up is kept, this pra- the process of the practice unfolding. You know, sometimes it's just steady, and sometimes it's enormously tender. So, one practice that um, that's, that that can be helpful in terms of cultivating the the felt sense of metta You know, there's so many different ways to. Do the, the formal Brahmavihara practice. There's the phrases and the pervading and all the categories of beings and the directions, and the, there, there's so many different ways. And uh, with regard to emotions, you know, you've been getting some instructions on emotions the past few days. It can be really helpful to uh, do this widening and softening practice. For me, that's like a practice that has the flavor of metta without the phrases, you know, when there's some sense of that beginning to tighten up, to just allow your awareness to get really big, you know, much, much bigger than your physical body, much bigger than this room, to just connect with a really sense of, of spaciousness, spacious like the sky is spacious. And, and from there, to just soften not to need to figure out what mindfulness tactic to apply, not to need to figure out exactly where this is on the map of the fourth foundation, but just to soften. So you can like touch the experience from the inside, just to breathe out (laughs) and soften. There's a way that right there is a presence of that kind of tenderness that that is the quality of metta. So meta has this um, effect of, of beginning to melt and soften and make things workable. Make it be okay. We can work with this. I had a friend come come visit me two weekends ago where I live in Colorado, and this is a friend who lives in Berkeley. And we really wanted to spend time together, and our lives have been so full, we just have not been able to see each other. And it was very sweet. They flew out for two nights, and um, I said, let's go snowshoeing and skiing. And we went up in the mountains with our snowshoes and trampled around through the gorgeous white powder and all the incredible um, land that's right right where I live. And I was having such a great time with her. It was so much fun. And I was just noticing this feeling of metta that was there between us. And there was a sense of being in that field of metta with her and I was, we were both aware of it, and there was a sense of it, it was just amplifying itself. And I was noticing the impact that that had on my, my experience and my consciousness, and I felt um, so free to be myself. You know, like nothing held back, like Maya Angelou was talking about. And there was a sense of the impact of it just on on. A, my mind was just kind of fluid intelligence. You know, that things weren't very sticky in that way. And there was a delight in really uh, tracking and being aware of the impact of sharing that quality of metta with another person. Really, really beautiful. So it's like, I don't know if it was just our conversations or the snowshoeing that was great, or if it was just the huge metta infusion <laughs> that I had from that weekend. So, um, metta is, it can be a beautiful relational practice. Some of you talk about doing metta outside and with the trees or um, with pictures that you have in your room or with presence of beings who are represented on the altar. And um, it's so powerful to make connection, to have connection with ourselves and another from that place of presence because so often, um, what's actually the way that we make contact with one another is through our ideas of each other, right? So it's like my idea of myself makes making contact with my idea of all of you as a group. And it's really boring because there's not much new information there. You know, the ideas of things get fixed, they get set, and it's not actually that satisfying. And, um, So metta has a way of widening, widening you out of kind of that narrow trap sense of me and offering the same, offering the same to another so that we can actually meet and get through life with what's actually happening moment to moment, what's actually here and now, which is much more dynamic than the story of me or the story of you. Noticing what's actually happening as you're sitting and walking. Um, which is very different than, you know, being um, tugged all over the place. So metta is uh, contactful in a way that is, tends to be satisfying. It's, it's a way of being, um, doing relational practice that, that yeah, is, is from presence to presence, friendliness to friendliness, which is, which is an entirely different experience than connecting through personality view, right? And connecting through sakaya Ditti. Metta melts. On my first long retreat here at Spirit Rock, that's a number of quite a number of years ago now, but I came from Colorado, and I had this idea. Great, I'm going to California in February. It's going to be so sunny and warm, and uh, <laughs> so I didn't bring a winter coat. I brought like a light shell something. I got there here. I started sitting. and I was so cold, and I went in for my interview to see Guy Armstrong, who could see how cold I was, and he was so dear. He brought me one of his winter jackets and his gloves and hat that I wore for that month, his beautiful heart. And um, I was cold that month, and I was sitting kind of kind of close to the window over there. And there was a person, I'm sure this is, one of you who has this job probably in this retreat, who was the, the person kind of in charge of the temperature in the room, opening and closing the windows. And I... Um, I was convinced that that yogi had no clue what they were doing at all because it was always too cold. And, um, and I had my eye on them. I <laughs> did. I had a, honestly, I had a Vipassana vendetta going on with this other yogi. And um, I would just watch every time they would go open the window and, oh, I can't believe you're doing this to me. And, and I started watching this yogi doing other things thinking you're not a very respectful yogi how the are going through the food line i mean my mind was caught in aversion clearly and um there would have been nothing this person could have done that would have been right in my mind because i was in my story of me and my story of them completely and it was fixed and reinforced by the aversion and um so that was this huge piece i was working in my mind during that month long and um and then the last week of the retreat, something else was strong in my experience, which was that as I was going to sleep at night, I would hear the person in the room next to me crying in their bed. And I really felt for, I didn't know who was next to me, but I was really feeling for this yogi because it was so clear that they, were in, um, that they were in pain of some sort. And you know, I sat with the impulse of wanting to, to reach out in different ways, but I knew that they were hurting. And so I was seeing this place where my heart was very tender and this place where aversion was really running the show. And it was the last full day of the retreat and we were cleaning our rooms. And the woman who was in the room next to me walked out and you know who she was? (laughs) She was the window woman. (laughs) And it was such a teaching for me because I could have um, metta and compassion for these, these tears of this person next to me. There was a wall between us, you know. I could have met in compassion there. But I had none, really. I was trying to, but when I was honest about it, I really had none for the person opening the w- and closing the window. And there was a way I wasn't seeing that person in their full humanness. It was such a teaching moment for me in terms of um, the, really the power of judging mind and the um, work that is to be done to move in the direction of a meta that is truly boundless. There's a lot there. <laughs> and I've actually gotten to know that woman and she's a really lovely woman. And I've told her this story. <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't be letting it be recorded in this way <laughs> Oh, <laughs> mm. so so I've mostly been talking about a kind of personal personal metta, you know, metta so we become more kind and we feel better, and our practices grow, and it's valuable on retreat to keep connecting with why you're here, really. And if we take that thread all the way down, you know, it has to do with happiness, and if we take it even deeper down, I the, the wisdom element, too, it just... Has to do with practicing in a way that's a benefit to all beings. You know, this path is not about private salvation, as I understand it. Joanna Macy said the other week. She said, "If you're into private salvation, that's like it's worth not worth more than salt. There is no such thing. But just um, you know, our our liberation is bound up together, and and um." When, when there's doubt in the practice or when it's difficult, you, know, it's, you might remember, all right, practicing for the benefit of all beings. Because it's actually a powerful statement and a powerful action to be spending your time in this way. And I, I think it's important not to miss that. And, um, and, you know, each of you come and you sit here and you, you, your lives you're able to leave you know the physical elements of some of your daily life behind, but it's it's here with you in different ways you know we come and we sit here in the totality of our lives and all the currents that run through our experience um, as human beings and so I came across a couple days ago this really awesome it 's a really short video obviously i 'm not going to show you a video but it's it's, um, it's, like it's kind of like slam poetry. It's really great. This doctor in Albuquerque named Umar Malik, who's a, he's a physician in Albuquerque, and he's a first-generation Muslim-American. And he put together this short... Um, it's really basically a letter to his future son, son or daughter. And he put it on Facebook as a... a uh, fundraiser for the aclu it's really a great way to fundraise and it's this beautiful um to me modern day meta prayer you know a, a meta prayer of if if the buddha were alive today you know what would he name <laughs> in terms of the meta what would the categories of beings be what would what what might he name and uh this is really beautiful this this um Man Umar is is really in the face of oppression and injustice inviting us into empathy, inviting us into love. And I just wanted to share a little little bit of it with you. It's this big long thing and I'm not having music or movement or rhythm so it's a completely different impact. But his words have just really been with me and um, I realize that they touch me because it's a it's a meta-prayer, and I'm just going to share some of what he wrote um, with you in the spirit of holding our practice um, for the benefit of all beings. And so he's, in the video, he's got this big mural behind him um, with a picture of what looks like a First Nation person, and says, honor the people. And uh, this is this is called "You I Am," and again, it's a letter to his future son or daughter as a as a meta prayer. And I'm just reading like you the a small part of it, so it might seem a little bit out of context, but I think he's speaking to us. And he says, "Because you're made of something beautiful, not something obscene." And with the light inside your eyes, show them what they can't see. You see, we're perfect imperfections held together by a dream, and you're closest to the most high when you're down on your knees. So when they tell you that you're different, they don't know that it means that you have something great beneath it, like Muhammad Ali. May you never see the color of your skin as a weakness. May you never judge another person different by their features. May you never know the painful cries of massive deportation, You're immigra- your seed of immigration that was grown into this nation. So never run or hide your faith, Allah will give you patience. So fight for equal rights in spite of what they might believe. In that is freedom that Dr. King had seen when he was dreaming. Now we're screaming Black Lives Matter for the same reason. So may you never see a disability as a weakness, for your auntie only has a hand, but makes it look all easy. May you never see somebody die or poisoned by their poverty, drinking lead water from the faucets on their property, or ever see the day when oil conquers water, or corporations colonize our native sons and daughters. May you never know the days when women aren't treated equally, or even seem to be the highest paid that they're deserved to be. And so I write this to my son and to my daughter, to my soul, from your father, I got one more lesson for you. Most importantly, I pray you love your mother more than me, for she walks across the earth with heaven beneath her feet, and we are free. Said, we are free. As she walks across earth with heaven beneath her feet, said, we are free. I think that's really beautiful. It's a different kind of thing (laughs) to share in a Dharma hall in a certain way, but it's just such a Beautiful uh, metta prayer for us to um, radiate good wishes to all beings with no exception. I think that you know, when, when things become you know difficult on, on retreat, if you're feeling if there's grief happening or you're feeling under pressure in some way, You know, or in life, we we just don't need somebody to tell us how it is. (laughs) What is needed is the quality of, of great heart, great heartfulness. And this quality is something that develops through meditation, you can feel it in people. So there's a, I borrow this from Ajahn Suchido, he's been really, a very important teacher in my own practice, a quite senior monk in the Theravada forest tradition. And uh, he talks about the brain sense in practice, you know, how we (laughs) hold things in these generalized learning categories. Like today it's Friday, and you know that you're sitting in the hall at Spirit Rock, and, um, you know, you can look at the floor and see that that's a wood floor. You know, the brain sense. And then... That there's also this heart sense that gets experience in more um, direct and specific detail. Like how it is if you sense the mood in the room right now. you have a sense of that? Or how it is to sense the flow of the breathing. Whether it's smooth or light or heavy or cool. Kind of that feeling of when you, you know, if you were to lick your fingertip and hold it, hold it up to the breeze, when you take in the specific quality of how something is manifesting right now, the heart sense comes into play. And it's like a, it's an sh- opening to another way of knowing through, through the heart sense. And in this country, I think we're really trained in the brain sense. We're trained in a very intellectual, cerebral kind of knowing. And the heart sense is more of a knowing that comes from embodied presence that's connected uh, with the heart. And when you think about this heart sense. I, I think about the you know the mirror neurons that are inside all of us. You know, you can you can go into a room often and look at somebody and have a sense of how they're feeling, right? Without before before somebody even opens their mouth, if this is someone you know well, you might be able to sense. Oh, this person's angry, or this person's really radiant today. And uh, we're connected in this way as human beings. You know, we're we're more connected, like living in a field together, than being these separate boxes cordoned off from one another. And the heart. You know, we we talk about the heart center, but this physical heart. Is this organ of perception that's sending out electromagnetic um, impulses to check, to check things out. It's a contributor to our direct experience. So uh, this is kind of some of the territory of where metta really lives. It, the phrases are helpful to plant the seed of intention. And the, this kind of felt sense of kindness is, is really where metta makes its home. I had the the great good fortune this past December to go to Germany. It was like amazing that this worked out for me on a lot of levels in my life. And a dear friend of mine, a woman I've known for probably twenty five years, we grew up together. Where we went, went, we were in high school together in, in Fargo, North Dakota, where I'm from originally. And she uh, was spending a period of time working as a psychotherapist in Germany. And she said, Erin, you've got to come, you've got to come. And I had the time off. And I went, and um, you know, I, was, I was so jet-lagged for a lot of the time. She, I kept saying, you know, Terry, I feel, I feel out of my mind. And she said, great, you know, this is the experience of being out of your mind. And I said, I feel out of my body. You know how jet-lag can make a person feel half-crazy? And she said, okay, this is the experience of being out of your body. And um, we decided to take the train to Paris. And I, you know, I just had never been to that part of the world. And um, I got in touch with a friend of mine who lives out here and said, what should I do in Paris? And she said, here's exactly what you should do. You know, here's where you should stay. Here's where you should eat. Here's what you should do. And she said, the one thing you really need to be sure you do in Paris is go to the D'Orsay Museum. She said, get a ticket online, you know, get there at quarter to 10 before they open, get in the front of the line. As soon as the door opens, run up the stairs and go to the third floor, go go see the Impressionist exhibit. And, um, I, you know, I thought, okay, cool. You know, I'm not super into artwork, but I thought this comes really highly recommended. I'll do it. And, um, we got the tickets and my friend Terry, who always runs late, actually wasn't running late that morning. And, um. We got there in time, and uh, you know, I ran up the stairs and went to the—I think it was the third floor—and there were it was this incredible artwork by original artwork by Monet and Degas, and uh, there was a Picasso in there. There was work by Van Gogh, and I—I I got in there, and I was like standing in front of these incredible works of art that I knew very little about I really hadn't studied them. And um, I, I just was so struck by the power of these pieces of art, by the power that these pieces of art had been preserved over hundreds of years, and that I was actually looking at the originals. And tears just started coming down my face. It was completely um, unexpected for me, and everybody's. You know, we got to be up there alone for a while because other people hadn't come yet they didn't know to get there early and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um and um there was just a sense of being in the presence of such um transmission in humanity um i felt like i was like really seeing through the eyes of these people who lived in the 1800s there's a sense of as i was seeing the light and the texture and the color and the shape of, of, um, you know, of Monet's blue water lilies, um, I felt this direct connection, you know, to this being who had lived a few hundred years ago, and, and I was, um, it felt so, so close in a certain way, and I stood there and feeling like my cells were getting rearranged in a certain way, it surprised me, it really felt like a kind of, um, a kind of transmission in a certain way that really, that really pierced my heart. And um, I actually read later that Van Gogh, um, he, he said, I feel there's nothing more truly artistic than to love people. It was really amazing because um, there was a way that these impressionists, I learned later, Really, were having a different way of seeing and a different way of painting. They were um, recreating the sensation in the eye um, that views what's being seen more than they were painting these perfect lines that represented, um, you know, things. And so there was a way that just the picture of a flower or a person's foot or, um, you know, a, a pond. Was um was so powerful, and there was a way that I I I, uh, I felt completely in this field of meta from these paintings, <laughs> and so it just makes me curious, you know, all the different ways that we can experience a kind of of meta that has to do with intimacy, that has to do that that wasn't through the story of anything, it was through this direct ex- experience, and it's still still very much with me this feeling of um seeing seeing the dharma the dharma in in the um in their works of art from a few hundred years ago and interestingly they were you know they, they kind of got in trouble for it they were criticized they were seeing things in a new way and you know we're practicing a new way of seeing we're practicing seeing things as they really are in the vipassana practice and in the metta where we're um, developing a kind of a heart way of seeing that's, um, that's in the experience itself. Mary Oliver says, there's nothing in this world if I pay attention to it long enough that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love if there's something I haven't found it yet. So just to connect a little bit the metta with um, and the brahmaviharas with some of Nikki's teaching last night on the on the seven factors in uh, in the suttas in the Asim, um there's a there's a whole story where wanderers of other sects go to meet with uh, the Buddha, and um, they're basically saying that, um, that they teach to their disciples a mind imbued with loving-kindness, a mind imbued with compassion, a mind imbued with uh, sympathetic joy, a mind imbued with equanimity. And um, they say... Um, what is the distinguishing factor of what you're doing, Buddha? Because they were seeing that people who were sitting with the Buddha were having a depth of realization that their people weren't. So they were saying they were, they were teaching the Brahma-viharas, but they weren't teaching them in, in such a full way. And the Buddha goes on to talk about um, that when, when people ask him this, um, when people, he was asking his monks, how is awareness release, which is a way of talking about um, being free from craving, how is awareness release, so that's quite a level of freedom, it can also refer to a deep level of concentration, but how is awareness release through goodwill developed? What is its destination, its excellence, its fruit, and its consummation? And um, the Buddha goes on to say that there's a case where a practitioner develops mindfulness is a factor for awakening accompanied by goodwill and he goes through each of the seven factors accompanied by goodwill which is metta and then he goes on and he does this with each of the of the other three brahmaviharas he goes through each of the seven factors bringing in karuna mudita upeka. and it's this really beautiful weaving together of the seven factors of awakening with the brahmavihara practices and, um, you know, he says, I, I tell you, practitioners, awareness released through goodwill has the beautiful as its excellence. In the case of one, well, that's... But basically, it's just this incredible, um, ongoing um, dialogue. It's really, It's really beautiful that brings together... The Brahmaviharas with the seven factors. So they, they really go together. You know, you can cultivate the Brahmaviharas when you're cultivating the seven factors. You can go through each of the seven factors that Nikki reviewed last night and bring metta. You know, is there metta there? Um, you can cultivate the seven factors while doing the radiating metta practice. And Aglio has a has a beautiful piece here on this, but it's like awareness pervading with the quality of metta. So we can talk about um, the two wings in a certain sense, but they're they're very much inseparable. They're very much two sides of the same coin, the mindfulness and the loving kindness. Even a moment of mindfulness is like saying, oh yeah, I care, I care about this moment. And in the metta what I what I really appreciate a lot of different things about the metta but the metta is really um, related to how you're showing up, how you're showing up. The first part of the metta-sutta is uh, really about conduct. It's about recommendations for day-to-day conduct, how we're behaving, how we're acting in the world. What does loving kindness look like in terms of conduct? And the second part discusses loving kindness as a as a distinct technique of meditation, which we're teaching here in the afternoons. And the third part of the of the Metta Sutta is basically a, a commitment to this universality, the boundless nature of Metta. No being, no being left out. And um, Metta is like a, a culture of mind a beautiful culture of mind that leads to samadhi, that leads to happiness, that leads to freedom. And the last line, you know, of the metta-sutta, this is from our dear Gill's translations. Um, at the very end of the metta-sutta, unattached to speculations, views, and sense-desire with clear vision, such a person will never be reborn in the cycles of suffering. That's a that's a powerful statement, to put at the end of the Metta Sutta. Because because the Buddha is speaking about complete freedom there. At the end of the Metta Sutta. You know, we talk about all this stuff, but it it's it's. It's really quite simple. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really quite simple. It's this intention to bring kindness to the present moment in a way that includes yourself. You know, sometimes metta can just be on retreat, this moment-to-moment being in touch with what is needed now. What is needed now? There's this responsiveness to ourselves. What is needed now? Checking it out, and when, when we ask in that way, what is needed now, there's, there's a kind of shiver of response there. What is needed now? And, and listening and responding so that you're practicing in a way that's line, lined up for you here. What is needed now? Really, what is needed now? I'll, I've got all these pieces of paper. I think I'll just end um, with a few words actually from Barbara Kingsolver. She's such an awesome author. And she talks, about, she talks about elementary kindness. And I just think, it kind of says it, you know, in terms of what we long for, what we're cultivating. She, she says, um, the very least you can do in your life is to figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. What I want is so simple, I almost can't say it. Elementary kindness. Enough to eat, enough to go around, The possibility that kids might one day grow up to be neither the destroyers nor the destroyed. That's about it. Right now I'm living in that hope, running down its hallway and touching the walls on both sides. We'll just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.com